I think you're really going to enjoy this episode because it, it was me subjecting myself to brain mapping with uh, Tiffany Thompson, who uh, uh, owns the uh, Neurofield Neurotherapy uh, Clinic in Santa Barbara. She's telling us all about the various things that she can do with transcranial stimulation of the brain and well first of all brain mapping and looking for pathology or for explanations of behavioral changes and treatment thereof and uh, it's just fascinating really really good really fun yeah it really was i mean it is it is um to me of 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 course everyone should be doing this and taking care of their brain so she was great enjoy the show but what do i know i'm just a vagina doctor Tiffany Thompson, welcome to the Vagina Doctor Podcast. Good to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, You're based in Santa Barbara. You're a neuroscientist, licensed therapist, educator, and technologist. You're the founder and owner of the Santa Barbara Clinic Neurofield Neuropathy. No, sorry, neurotherapy. You know, (laughs) I've said that a few times to myself, and I know that it's wrong. (laughs) You're not causing disease or damage. It's neurotherapy, uh, where you offer a quantitative electroencephalography, um, functional brain counseling to clinicians as well. Um, I was uh, introduced to you a month or two ago, a few months ago, um, where you were giving a presentation at the, at the library. And I came a little late, and I frankly, I was kicking and screaming because I didn't really want to get, do that that particular night. But within five minutes... He was minutes, just hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really... Uh, I, in five minutes, I was fascinated by everything that you were saying and, and your associate, Dr. Dogris. Yeah, my husband. Oh, his husband. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to have you on the podcast because you were, what you were talking about was fascinating. Um and uh, then decided, and in, in we decided, you and I, uh, that I would actually become a patient and uh, see what the process was. But before we get to that, I want you to tell us what all the, the, uh, all the different things that you provide and the types of patients you see and what you can do, uh, because it was really... Um, uh, a, it was very uh, significant to me what things you could affect and improve by uh, by your therapy. So, right, um, a good question. That's a big question. So, to summarize in a nutshell, what we're what we're doing is a physical rehabilitation for the brain, but we're using stimulation technology foremost, uh, light, um, electromagnetic field therapy, different forms of transcranial stimulation. And so the way that I like to describe it to folks is, you know, we're addressing the hardware of the brain and this, and the software then would be the more psychological goings on the emotional goings on the behavioral goings on. And so of course those findings, those types of symptoms all have, a, a, a a base, a profile. And so electroencephalography, EEG, is looking at the 
action potentials, the, the, the electrochemical firings of the brain, but foremost, the electrical side of things. And uh, that raw content provides a, a narrative for the individual. Um, and it's beautiful. It's really, it's highly intimate. And so from that data and another type of data called event-related potentials, uh, which is watching how the brain responds to a task, and from cognitive testing, we build a, a profile, essentially. We lay down, this is what your brain looks like. This is the blueprint of your brain. Um, and from that, we determine what we might do to alter and change the symptoms that are bothersome. Um, so I think that's the answer to the first question you asked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. There, you asked another one about the types of people that Yes, the types. So, yes, what, what conditions... Uh, do you see frequently? What's what? What do you see the most? And then, what yeah. are the ones that are less frequent? I'd say what walks in the door the most. It's a good question. I mean, a lot of run-of-the-mill psychopathology, anxiety, depression, PTSD, trauma, uh, learning disabilities like ADHD, which is the forerunner for learning disabilities, but mm -hmm. then the, the less popular types like dyslexia, dyscalculia, alexithymia. Um, a, uh, one that takes a little bit longer to work on would be uh, autism spectrum disorder. Uh, there's varying functional grades of, you know, um, ASD and neurodivergence. And then there's like head injury. I mean, that is, um, this year I really wanted to focus on learning disabilities and head injury foremost because it's really cool to see the changes and there's no way you're going to therapize somebody out of a head injury. And mm. there's really, you know, not much use to medicating somebody out of a head injury either, right? And so that's a, a smattering. Uh, if uh, Some others are OCD, um, age-related cognitive decline, normal age-related cognitive decline and pathological age-related cognitive decline. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's just a, sort of a smattering of what we do. Yeah, I first heard of you a few, I think it was a couple years ago and someone I knew was taking their daughter to you um, for, I think it was, you know, OCD, anxiety or, or something like that. And she was telling me about the brain mapping and... Um, what is that brain mapping? Yeah, it's a so so. There's the there's the raw EEG, which is just one imaging modality, right? Most people know an MRI is looking at the actual structure of the brain. An EEG is looking at, like I said, the action potentials mm -hmm. of firing of the brain, the the the, the, the squiggles, the way it verbs, um, and then from that, the the mapping, quote unquote, is thought foremost, I suppose, is the quantification of the data. And so that's going beyond just looking at the, the raw data, which is, like I said, beautiful and informative, but it's looking at how that then quantifies, meaning how does it map, um, how much, what is the amplitude of the beta content that this person is making and where does it live and what does that mean? What are the different spatial and spectral patterns in the brain, uh, which are called independent components? And that's a lot. What I mean to say when I say that is there are patterns in the brain and they have a home in the brain. And the pattern is like the adjective that describes the functionality, which is that home, that spatial location. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's drawing a lot of pieces together to, to explain why the person has 
right the the symptoms or the feelings or whatever that they have and then i mean also um i was referred to someone that does this down in la for actually my daughter who has ocd and and she's had it her whole life and um i said oh no we have someone here you know that does this and she was really happy to hear that um she's down in ventura herself um but um in terms of like treating a patient with with what you do with OCD, what what does that look like for that patient? Right. Um, or, well, or do you see like, oh, this is, uh, yeah, I can see in the brain that you have this, right? Is that how it looks? It's like so crystal clear? To me, it is. Um, now, the the field of neurotherapy, there's honestly, there's, there's clinicians of varying competencies, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, and so one of the things that's so interesting about pathology as it shows up neurologically is that they often have so many different profiles. So for instance, OCD often has to do with something called the air detection and processing network. And it's a, it's, there's lots of theories and, um, findings as to what's actually going on. And I could get into like the nitty gritty data of it, which might be a little bit too dense, but, Um, We're looking at the different nodes in a very simple sense of this particular network. Um, And there are different profiles that show up in the nodes. So when I say a node uh, for this particular network, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is if you placed your fingers right at your third eye and you pushed back, you'd hit the front of the old mammalian brain, the limbic system. Um, And that's important for mood and affect and a bunch of other things. And so there could be different profiles. The three mm-hmm. fi- findings that we see foremost at that location in OCD, and this is of the many different, you know, variations on a theme, are slow content, which is anything eight hertz or under, eight oscillations per second or under, alpha content, and then a beta spindle. And they all have a different uh, vibe. They all have a different appearance. They all are going to manifest in subtleties in the symptoms. And so that's where this gets really rich and beautiful and complicated and hard, yeah. you know, hard to, to sort of convey and teach, but rich. Yeah, because everyone has OCD to some degree. I mean, everyone is a little funny about something. <clears throat> um, but when, it, when a, a patient presents with maybe something that is um, interfering with their day-to-day ability, you know, to, to live their life and be fully functioning and they come to you for help with this what what does treatment look like for that person thanks for asking that that was the the second piece of your question um so after we understand what's going on and what it looks like then given the time that we've had to develop neurostimulation software because that's the other side of of this company right um we give the individual what they need to address the thing that they have going on and often it's a balancing act Mm -hmm. um sometimes it's a I'll call it a decoupling of a deviant synchrony index. So um, sometimes we see things lock. We'll see power, power coupling in the data. But what it might actually look like to the patient, right, as they come in, um, they would have anywhere from two to six electrodes placed on their head uh, based upon where the findings are and how we can access those findings. And the full Monty uh, would be adding in other modalities like PEMF, which is like a, it's an energetic soak. That's the best way I know how to describe it. 
electromagnetic field therapy, but it's like an energetic soak, and then photobiomodulation, which is light therapy. And we can we can work light at many frequencies as well, and light penetrates. There's a depth to light, um, which is why it's a really cool modality. There's a lot of other things that are happening with it. So it's it's a it's kind of like a head dress of uh-huh. sorts that the person's going to have on, and then they sit for anywhere from thirty to 40 minutes, uh, around, around 40 minutes, you're pretty saturated. I don't think your brain can take any more stimulation, but the, the mechanism of action in a simple sense is a monkey see monkey do is a mimicry. So instead of, um, you know, uh, like a neurofeedback, which would be rewarding your brain for doing the right thing by giving a feedback, like a visual feedback, mm-hmm. this is showing your brain what to do. It's giving your brain what we want it to do and what we're doing is we're breaking down old paths of least resistance and we're building in new ones um so that would be a session that's what a session is is like and then how many sessions would they need it's a good question too it depends on the what so um neuroses anxiety um things that are cortical in origin many, not all, but I can think of exceptions, but they respond quickly. That's so great. anxiety moves, it's our low hanging fruit that, that could be, I don't know, 15 to 20 sessions, mm-hmm. which might sound like a lot. Um, but the analogy here is it's like going to the gym. So there's a build, there's a cumulative build, uh, that's at that's at play. Now a, a head injury, uh, that could take years, honestly, it depends on the type yeah. Um, you know, a TBI, it, you might never, of course, fully recover. Um, autism spectrum disorder, where there's white matter wiring differences in the brain, depending on the functionality, um, you know, it might take much longer. But then other things, you know, like uh, it might take 25 sessions. So when people ask me that question, the standard answer is about 25 to 30 sessions is what probably what it takes on average to take care of most things. And what do, what do those patients say like at the end of treatment? I mean, especially for like autism patients, I would think that that would be pretty remarkable for them, their experience and the shift. So what do the, what do the autistic patients say at the end of? Or, yeah. Or parents of, yeah. Like, like, is it, um, is it something that they are like, wow, I can't, you know, I can't believe I didn't do this sooner or, you know. So, um, yes and no. So with these tough cases, so when someone comes in and it's going to be years of work, mm-hmm. I'm pretty straight with them where I yeah. say, listen, this is a long game that we're playing here. It's going to require some commitment on your part and there are options for you. Um, now we have a school. And so one of the things I do is I train clinicians. I see, I oversee clinician cases. Um, That's great. Yeah. Um, and we, anyway, all said, if a parent is coming and it's a long-term case, I might say, you might want to consider learning how to apply this and investing in some hardware and software instead of coming to us for years on end, let's say with a severely disabled child. Um, but if money isn't a thing, and it, you know, they're not worried about spending years of their time to do it, then absolutely. I mean, when, when it's applied the right way, it works beautifully. I mean, we've seen nonverbals become verbal. Um, I mean, there's lots of very cool stories about, you know, how people have gained, uh, functionality. Um, but it depends on, again, the profile of the autism in that particular 
uh, symptom or that particular disorder's case. Yeah. Well, I know with um, Duncan's situation, you want to do you want to go into that? Well, it was it was kind of interesting. I you know I um, I say frequently that um, when I'm uh, in the position of a patient instead of the position of the physician, I I learn more and I'm a better doctor. Um, so I'm really interested in seeing what people are getting and and uh, the whole process of of evaluation and treatment. So I was. Uh, evaluated in in your clinic. Um, I was mainly concerned about some recent loss of memory um, and uh, was found with the testing that my cognitive function was actually pretty good. Um, and, um, and and this uh, I noticed more of this of an issue uh, after I'd had general anesthesia for a procedure. And I think really felt afterwards that, you know, as I did come back, something like normal afterwards, after the um, uh, the anesthetic has, had worn off, that I was better. Uh, but I, it, it was fascinating. First of all, the cognitive testing was brief, but it was pretty um, exhausting. It was it was tiring. Just it was concentration, right. and and, um, uh, and they. They particularly made the point, you know, we're not trusting. This is not an IQ test. This is uh, this is just your reaction and um, the cognitive ability. Um, I had one treatment, um, and it was uh, really not anything that I can really um, comment on, other than the fact that it was painless and. Um, I, but I felt something was happening for sure. Uh, and I want to do more. And because I think that it's, yes, the, that acute episode of, of, uh, forgetting names, um, can be explained by, um, anesthesia, but I'd kind of like to improve in that area anyway. So if my brain can be tweaked to be better in that regard, um, then so much the better. It's uh, I I feel very fortunate to have an opportunity to do that, and um, so I want I want to continue to do it. But it was, I mean, a lot of people are just uh, you you mentioned uh, there was a word that you used I, I think in describing what you were doing. That's it's it's intimate, and I think that's accurate. And and I felt a bit vulnerable. And the testing, like somebody's actually going to look at my brain. And just I would be, I would be sure scared to death to do it. I would feel really, I, I think I'd be scared to do it. I think it's good you did it, especially because we were really kind of doing this whole thing with the podcast called Deconstructing Anti-Aging. Mm-hmm. And this is part of it, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. brain health. Yeah. And, and really okay, let's not just look at your diet and your exercise and your strength. Let's look at your brain. What is it doing? You know, where, what are things you can work on exercises you can do? So this kind of, I think with his discovery of longevity right now and everything, it was great. He took this step into this with you. I, 
I would be scared to death to do it. But I well, thought, oh my God, I'd fail that cognitive no. test. <laughs> and even if you did, I mean, this is what's so cool about it. Even if you did, um, I'll just reference a client that I saw, you know, just the past week. She did maybe seven or eight sessions, lots of very low and, and um, low average scores on the test. And within eight sessions, she was up to um, average and above average. So it is intimate. Um, and one of the very important pieces to insert regarding that is around the field in general, um, where, you know, the practitioner themselves have to be vetted and mm -hmm. what they're looking at, because I could freak people out if I didn't know what I was doing. Um, by saying, yeah. oh my God, you know, you got some frontal delta, you you got a head injury and it could yeah. just be blinks or eye movement or something, you know? And we're so, just saying, have you ever had a head injury? Well, I know. <laughs> I, <laughs> just I think the first that time question. that I had my head maps, the person said, have you had a head injury? And I was like, no, I haven't. <laughs> so there's so much, um, delicacy and subtlety and it's all pattern recognition and association and that goes into this. But, um, yeah, you want to be in good hands because it is intimate and it is vulnerable. And well, and you have that background because you are licensed in marriage and family counseling, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So you come from that place where I think you are um, better able to address some of these things in a politically correct way, not to, I think, scare people. Right. Yeah. I'd like to think I have some coos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I know after um, after uh, Duncan went and did these tests, I'm like, I was super interested. What did you have to do? And he was like, well, I had to memorize, you know, going through the memorization of things and then also hitting the button. Um, and you had to hit the button at a certain time. As quickly as, as possible. Quickly as quickly as possible. Which he did. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So it was good. You, um, in the short questionnaire that we sent you, um, one of the questions was, is pushing boundaries part of your original makeup or did, it, uh, did a life experience make you this way? And your response was, I didn't know I pushed boundaries. <laughs> and But you do. And... So I would say that's a part of your original makeup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you haven't if you realized didn't know. <laughs> if you didn't know, that's yeah. it, right. Right. Um, but how well is what you're doing accepted by the regular neurologist? Such or, a good question. Yeah. yeah, and it depends on the neurologist. Mm -hmm. Um and so I, I've worked in neurology. Um, I started reading EEGs in neurology. Uh, and back then I was, uh, I was primarily using neurofeedback, which is a modality that I don't use anymore. Um, some are very open to it. So what we're doing is we're doing brain stimulation. And there is a whole burgeoning field of brain stimulation. Mm -hmm. Um there's transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is something that a lot of psychiatrists are doing for treatment-resistant depression. There's, of course, of course, the old-school electroconvulsive shock therapy, and that's um, done in very bad cases of depression. It's a bit archaic, if you ask me. Um, it's a forced seizure. Mm -hmm. And those two modalities, um, in that order, 
are like a sledgehammer and like a stick of dynamite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not trying to put them down, but they're tools with their, um, mm-hmm. their place. Now, what we are working with is a subtleties and it's like a tool belt of an infinite number of tools that we can apply and use to shift and shave and carve and sand and mold what we see as the issue. And it's, it takes a bit of time. Like I said to you, it's a cumulative build. Um, but I think if a neurologist is open to the field of neurostimulation, mm-hmm. then they're open to what we're doing. Um, this is going to sound a little bit um, bold, but at the at this clinic with the hardware and software that we're manufacturing and teaching people how to use, we're at the clinical forefront of, of applied neurostimulation, of clinically applied neurostimulation. I'll say it one more time. We're at the forefront of clinically applied neurostimulation because we're making this stuff and we're, yeah. we're training people how to use it. We're the boots on the ground. So it's absolutely unorthodox and avant-garde um, and even a little bit strange and highly effective, highly effective. I would not be in mental health at all if it weren't for having some teeth right, yeah. to move the needle mm-hmm. for people. Right. So is it accepted um, by some? Yeah, by but, some. Right. And that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, we don't need everybody to accept it. What we're trying to push for is to make this a standard of care. And so that's actually my, one of my own um, life missions as I see it is to make this uh, clinically applied neurostimulation a standard of care because it's so powerful. Um, And if you can't medicate something and if you can't operate on something that's neurological, and and bodily as well. I mean, that's sort of a side thing, but this neurological, what are you going to do? Yeah. Just sit. Well, what, what yeah. do you think is like, just in general, what do you think the problem is with traditional Western medicine neurologists that they don't accept it? Is it, is it something like that the, because they're not doing it or is it? Well, I mean, you know, a part of it is the fact that it hasn't been tried and trusted and, you know, pushed through. Right now we have several of our units pushed through F- the FDA and we're getting the final one okay. pushed through. Um, and so it's new. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's really the simple answer is that it's it's new and it's an unknown. And so they might shrug their shoulders. Uh, the more open-minded ones might say, that sounds really cool. I want to know more about it. Mm-hmm. We have many of them take our classes or come to our boot camps. Um, and then there's some that, that just say higgledy piggledy, you know, I, I only do pharmaceuticals and to each their own, you know? Right. Yeah. The, that- the sad thing about medicine <laughs> and medical careers generally, I think is, is that, um, we do what we're taught to do and we were taught in medical school and, uh, a career of 30 years or 30 to 40 years after medical school, uh, and residency or whatever anybody's doing um, is a long time to go if you work if you're working only with what you learned in medical school. In mm-hmm. other words, you can be half the time you're going to be more than fifteen years out of date. And uh, um, and yes, continuing medical education is significant and important, but you can get a CMA hour by going to tumor board once a week and have nothing to do with your own specialty 
and be able to get your required amount for hospital privileges or or state licensure. It's pretty strange, really, how uh, that um, continuous education is is not. I mean, you, you could never do that as, as an airline pilot, right? Yeah, you know, and you're not going to uh, hmm. fly a, a jet plane when all you've learned is how to uh, drive a single engine to prop plane. You know, it's just um, there just isn't enough continuing education for in in many fields, not just neurology right. by any means. Yeah. It's it's there. I mean, we we face this all the time. And um, the, I, I loved your quote of the. And um, <laughs> we may need to scratch this out of the the final result here, which was uh, an MD with an open mind is hard to. Hard to find, or it's, it's, a, rare. Yeah, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. Yeah, um, just, um, uh, yeah. So, but it's a pleasure to meet one. You know, and to come like when I when I meet a neurologist or an MD. Well, I'd say a neurologist foremost because they're the ones that are territorial over this, right? I'm mm. using an imaging technique, and I don't have the same. I don't have the top MD. I have a PhD, yeah, and other things, but um. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there's there's that element as well. I think there's the element of identity and, dare I say, of ego and um, all that stuff, which is interesting. I mean, identity politics are interesting, but that's yeah. another podcast, not today's. <laughs> but even though, right. it, even though they're, it, when you said they go through your boot camp, what does that look like? The right. boot camp for physicians. Well, we have so we, um, like I said, so there's there's a, a school called the School of Neurotherapy. There's a clinic called Neurofield Neurotherapy, and then there's uh, a hardware software company called Neurofield, Neurofield Inc., and that's the manufacturer of all of the hardware software. The school, um, there's a, so many different trainings, um, but in terms of how to use the hardware software, how to understand mm -hmm. it, how to read the data, how to apply it, um, we have a boot camp and we have an advanced training. Okay. And so the boot camp is five days. Uh, and we it, we assume that people know nothing coming in, that they're yeah. just beginners, and we take you from A to Z. Um, and by the end, you know, you're dangerous in a good way, <laughs> hopefully. Um, uh, and then the advanced is for, you know, these clinicians that have been with us for years and they just continue to to follow our lead. So those physicians that are, are not your, usually neurologists, though, or are they? Um, there are neurologists. Um, the, I mean, just this last training, what did we have? We had an, we had two ER doctors. Is that right? We had two ER doctors in our last boot camp training. And so foremost, it's um, licensed uh, mental health care professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, okay. marriage and family therapists, LPCCs. Um, and then second to that would be chiropractors and MDs. Um, some RNs, and that, those are the demographics that come through to get trained in this. Um, but yeah, there's certainly neurologists. I mean, there's plenty of neurologists in, in the field of neurotherapy, mm -hmm. you know, um, how old is this type of, um, treatment? Like how long has it been in existence? <laughs> so, um, I, I think that, so if we reference the whole field, this fits it fits in the family of biofeedback in a strange yeah. way um, as, a, as a, you know, step, stepsister. But biofeedback has been done since the Buddha started to meditate or his predecessors did, right? 
what, how can I get the feedback mm-hmm. on the thing that yeah. I'm doing? But um, if I wanted to answer the question for stimulation, oh gosh, I mean, I would say neurostimulation really started to kick up in the early 2000s. I don't have the exact date for you okay. or the thing. Um, you and know, was it for mental health? Was it, was that sort of the, the purpose? Yeah, well, I mean, if you go all the way back to like electric eels applied to the brain back in the time of like Galvani, you know, this this type of treatment has been around for a long time in a lot of mm-hmm. different ways. Um, electroconvulsive shock therapy has evolved from some real ar- archaic and barbaic, barbaric ways of addressing really severe mental pathology, right. you know, back in the day. You can find drawings of these things before the time of the photograph, right? Um, so I can't say it started in the 2000s with really total accuracy, but there's been an evolution in the field. And so in terms of its clinical application, um, it's, it's certainly still up and coming, you know, um, there is, um, a wild west to it, dare I say, right. Mm -hmm. Because it's not yet really well regulated. Um, and, but I would think that would be the appeal to a lot of people. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends on the it depends on the person, yeah. right? But yes, individuals who want to break outside of Western medicine, mm-hmm. who don't necessarily want to to whatever it might be, take a pill. It, you know, it does right now fit in the the realm of alternative modalities. Yeah. But that's one of the reasons why I I want to push it into mainstream health because it's it's that effective. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I think. Um, well, I know for. Um, this this woman that that we work with um, down in Ventura to her, and she works um, she works primarily. She's a psych, psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Is it Barbara and, Bloom? Or? No, um, Colleen Copeland. Okay, she works with kids. Cool. Yeah, and and she only works with kids, so eighteen and under. Although she will continue care um, just in more. But she she like 100% believes in this therapy for um, all kinds of. that Yeah, and that's a bit of an Achilles heel for it as well, I have to say, is the fact that it doesn't just treat anxiety. Like if I had a clinic that was an anxiety clinic, period, and catered to that, I, you know, that's that's a niche market. Mm-hmm. And so to say, you know, Hey, we can treat everything. It almost feels a little bit fishy. Um, you know, and, and we can't treat everything. Um, but, but there's a lot of things. If it's neurological in origin, mm-hmm. um, there's a good chance that it's within our wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 Um, ketamine's become popular again. <laughs> again. <laughs> you mean from the 1990s when yeah. it was sort of a party drug? Yeah, yeah. exactly. What, um, uh, what, what, what do you know about that? What's, what are the, I mean, there are places that, you know, uh, there's ketamine clinics popping ket- up all over oh, town. All over the place. Yeah. yeah. So what's that about? Um, it's a great question. Uh, I can talk about its pairing with neurostimulation. Ketamine is a, you know, it's an entheogen. It's, it fits in the psychedelic realm. It's a dissociative. Mm-hmm. If you've done it before, um, it sort of dissolves you. And some people need to be dissolved. Some people love it, and some people don't. Um, I I can't be a spokesperson for it, though. I can say that we've looked into it. 
Um, <clears throat> and that's another Wild West right now, right? Mm-hmm. The world of entheogenic medicine. Fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm a proponent of psychedelic medicine, um, for sure. Uh, and, and, and I, and I see the risks that we run in sort of opening up the gates. Like, I just think it's inevitable that there's going to be some, some stuff, some problems that come up with it. All that said, um, there has been literature that has documented how the pairing of neurostimulation, uh, with something like a ketamine or another, um, psychedelic or entheogenic is a beautiful combination because what we're doing is we're, we're pushing the brain into a state of neuroplasticity, mm-hmm. uh, in what we do. And that makes it more available, more malleable, more amenable to change similar to what's happening with a ketamine. You know, there's, mm-hmm. um, I can't talk to all the physical properties exactly of what's happening, but you pair the two and you can really direct the brain. You open the brain up with ketamine into a, um, a available process and you can either stim the brain before or after. Uh, and, and there are some pretty profound results. And, and I say this, uh, because my partner, my husband, uh, Dr. Nick Dogris, uh, he is doing this in a clinic in Florida, this very large rehab facility called FHE Health, where he's the neuroscience director. And they're doing it with lots of people. First responders are a huge demographic there, like EMTs, firefighters, policemen, people that have been mm-hmm. in you know, active um, traumatic situations. And they're pairing stimulation with ketamine. And they're just having these blockbuster results in terms of how they're shifting people. And what's so cool about this work, which I haven't mentioned, is the fact that after that initial quantification and we look at your your brain print, we say, oh, this is you and this is why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. After 10 sessions uh, or 15, depending on whether you go to me or Nick, uh, we'll see how you've changed and we can quantify that change. We can say, oh, good. So, you know, this thing is now down by 25 or 50 percent or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be like you're moving in the right direction and i think it's really relieving to see that Mm -hmm. this the red the red spot you know is is now a yellow spot you know so the amplitude of the thing is and that's using ketamine during the treatment or no that's great that wasn't specific to ketamine okay um that was sort of a general okay but yes ketamine as well but do you actually bring ketamine into sometimes someone's treatment? Not in our clinic. We okay. have, we've noodled on it. Um, but now I'm watching the same explosion that you are. And I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to get someone on the podcast for in town that's yeah. opening yeah. or that's opened actually just yeah. opened. Yeah. So, so what, what are the clinics? What's the purpose of the clinics at this point? I mean, I, other than people wanting to just take a trip. Ketamine? Yeah, I mean, are are these clinics, are they designed for uh, treating insomnia or weight management or what what, what is that? I wish I had a better, I mean, I don't. My experience with it or my knowledge of it, um, I would say almost no experience, was just that it used to be used as part of an anesthetic for for children. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. And so the the MD that just came through and took our training, that was his uh, ketamine experience as well. I, I wish I had a smart answer for you, but mm-hmm. I'm not in the realm of ketamine, honestly. Yeah. So I don't have right. one. Um, uh, I've certainly referred some of my patients to ketamine. I had a very severe OCD patient um, who I thought ketamine would work for, and it didn't. Um, but that's another story for another time. Yeah. 
Well, more to come on ketamine because it's it's definitely <laughs> yeah. in the news. And I think two two places opened up in town just recently, just this year. Yeah, it's happening. I mean, more than two. They're popping up everywhere. If you're a psychiatrist, you could make 600 bucks in one ketamine session under the table. Well, not under the table, but non-insured. So it is a very lucrative business. Yeah. 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 That's great. I like all these things. I, I, I'm fascinated by all of them. So when I hear, well, I, I think that was another thing I mentioned to you. I mean, just a few months ago and you were like, no. <laughs> and now you're like, all right, maybe we better get someone on this doing ketamine, you know, because uh, we've heard about it from some patients. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that the, the, the more interesting thing to me, honestly, ketamine is one animal in the zoo. Mm-hmm. And and there's a zoo, <laughs> right? There's a whole bunch of stuff out there. Now, ketamine got the green light, and so it's the first one that gets to be in the sunshine. But there is a whole world of underground journey work that's happening. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cool. Um, and uh, and it's and it's coming. I mean, we know about the studies about MDMA and and mushrooms, psilocybin, and, and, and those are just three now of who knows, I mean, maybe 50, maybe a hundred different modalities that are out there being used. Very Mm. beneficial when used properly. Yeah. Um, you know, in ceremony respectfully, not as a party. Right. So again, it's a bit of a rabbit hole to go down, but very interesting. I'd be happy to talk about that, but, but I can't be representative for it. Right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to get out to the public about what you're doing, uh, utilizing this podcast? Is there anything that we that we haven't talked about? Um, I think the the thing that is difficult for folks, if or how do I want to say this? This isn't unknown to most people, what we're doing here. Um, and what we're doing in talks like the one that we gave is we're trying to demystify it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's avant-garde and it's unorthodox, but um, but it's not scary. And, uh, it, you know, some people say, well, what, you know, what what if something goes wrong or, you know, what are the side effects or... And it's so beautiful and subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, it subtles the word. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's gentle yeah. and it's uh, very effective. But, you know, we're not going to permanently alter somebody's personality. We're not brainwashing people. We're not doing anything that's scary in the least. Um, it's non-invasive, but it can create a quantifiable and a subjective change. And so if there were anything to say, um, it would be, you know, you know, be, uh, allow yourself to be curious about the modality because it's super, uh, effective and, um, you know, we've never had a complaint. I want to knock on wood every time I say that, but you know, it's, it's not something that garners, um, anybody's ire. It's, it's really very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the time you tape, I was, I was part of your, um, after, uh, testing um, breakdown with Duncan, and it's a very 
um, the way you explain things and go over things. It's very layered mm-hmm. and a lot of great information. And uh, so the way you handle those consults, I think I, I think it's really, I, I felt that it mean just stepping in and I got there a little bit late, but it was easy to understand. It wasn't frightening. It just, yeah. It's such a positive thing. Yeah, it, it was really positive. At the very least, it's revelatory. Mm-hmm. You know, you could mm-hmm. say, you know, I want to check this out. And then you yeah. go and you're like, man, that was cool, but I don't really want to do anything or I don't need to or I don't feel like it or yeah you know but right. now you have that permanently in record for forever you know you yeah. have yeah. and some too the information was really interesting because the things that showed up in the brain of Duncan described exactly who who he is That's you know <laughs> no I, no um, the part where he um does well under pressure. The yeah, yeah. yeah there's, the, a, there's a particular profile. I, this is what I'd said then. There's a particular profile that we see in individuals who have to be in, or rather, not have to be who who do well in situations where they have to keep their cool, like an right. ER doctor, like a paramedic. Mm-hmm. I I've seen it time and time again with people that have really intense jobs that they have this very relaxed, open, chill, flowy profile where there's actually something of a disengagement i mean not in a bad way well it could be but but you get the point yeah and then it's that it's that action that stimulates them yeah. and allows them to become you know sort of focused and concentrated and yeah because you, know. you don't know how a person is like that or not like that and when you can see it in the brain it's like they're just like that you know yeah so again it's highly intimate mm-hmm. yeah yeah Right. Yeah. To be continued. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we're getting really good feedback. We'd really appreciate a review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Thank you. You can always DM the Vagina Doctor Instagram with any questions or topics you'd like to learn more about or email us. The Vagina Doctor Podcast. It all starts here.